being interested is better than being interesting. Um, and I like this idea because I think, you know, we spend a lot of our time trying to be interesting to other people. But actually, if we can be interested in them and interested in things, we become more interesting, but not because we're trying to be interesting, but because we're trying to learn and be interested. So my profile reads, being interested is better than being interesting. Collect dots, mix them up and see how they connect. Be easily distracted. Drink plenty of coffee. Understand that while life is short, that's not a good reason to rush it. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the marketing, branding, and the business world. Hi, Matthew. Thrilled to have you on our show. I'm going to say good morning because I'm in Milan at the moment where it's morning, but where you are, of course, it's afternoon. Um, Matthew, in your book, Business of Choice, you mm. have said you would like to call consumers choosers. You know? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so, and thanks, thanks for bringing that from the beginning. It's, a, it's, it's quite an important thing to me, but sorry, continue. Yeah. So, um, uh, it, I mean, it, it's such a powerful shift, you know, when you, when you say that, I mean, just, you know, the, the orientation changes to uh, another realm altogether. So, mm-hmm. you know, like you've said, for a brand or business to be successful, it needs people to choose it. So it is important to understand how people choose. Uh, Matthew, could you elaborate on how marketing is about helping people make choices and feel good about themselves? Sure, sure. So let's let's start with the idea that you you started with there, which is um, thinking about the people who can help you succeed as doing it through choice and actually them being choosers. And the reason I I, this is not my, as is, as is the case with many practitioners in the world of behavioral science, I use the great work of many people in the field. And the term chooser is something I, I borrowed from Sheena Iyengar, who you'll be familiar with. She's a professor at Columbia and wrote an excellent book called The Art of Choosing. Okay. Um, and she talks about just choosers as, as people. People, we, we are choosers because we make choices. But what struck me was that in, in marketing and in business, but in marketing in particular, we, we talk about people as consumers. This, this word is pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been used for many, many years. We talk about, I mean, even the academic study of marketing is consumer behavior. We have departments of consumer insights. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a couple of, of, of problems with this, with the word consumer, because um, I think, you know, you will have spoken you, in, in, in every organization in the world there are people who are focused on sustainability and more and more organizations try to promote the idea of being sustainable and um, creating products with sustainable pathways. But consumer and sustainability don't really go hand in hand. So the first first sort of hurdle, I think, for it is that it is not aligned with how organizations need to be in today's world because this should be a world which is much less about consumption. It can be about experiences, but as much as possible, we should be guiding people towards experiences that are sustainable. So, so I think, you know, it, it is the time to kick that word to the curb, as the Americans say, simply because of that. But from the perspective of marketing, I think it, it really misrepresents what marketing does. Marketing doesn't drive consumption. What it does, it can affect and influence choice. It can guide choice. 
And so when you think about marketing and, and try to relate that to the word consumer, I think it is much more honest for what we do as marketers and much more beneficial for what we do as marketers to think about people as choosers, because that's what we do. Words are important. The second thing is, I think it's much more respectable or respectful, sorry, to the people that we, we, we call consumers. I would, as a person, much more be defined, I'd much rather be defined by my choices than by what I've consumed. What I've consumed is a trash bag that gets collected every twice a week by, 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 the, by the, uh, the trash collectors. My choices are, uh, represent my values. They represent who I want to be. They represent sort of the impact I want to make on the world. So I think it makes more sense to think about people as choosers. Absolutely. Uh, like you've quoted uh, from the Woody Allen movie, you know, we are the sum total of our choices. We define mm. ourselves by the choices we have made. Um, so, uh, Matthew, could you get into the what, why, how of choice when it comes to marketing, whichever aspect you'd like to focus on? <laughs> well, I, I think the, um, I mean, it, it's obviously a huge subject and there is no simple way of talking about uh, how and why people choose. Uh, it is um, uh, absolutely very often context driven. Um, and um, what, but, but there is a framework I use actually, which is conveniently on my uh, <laughs> on my background behind me. And I use this. So this, this framework is called the behavioral lens. And um, I use that because um, I think it allows us to think about all of the things that affect choice in a manageable way. Um, so when I talk about looking at things through a behavioral lens, I don't mean I haven't actually kind of created some extraordinary magic lens that enables us to peer at human behavior. It's an acronym for four big areas that affect choice. And each of those is a huge area. You could write a dozen books on each area in itself. All I'm really saying is bear these things in mind when you want to think about how people are making decisions how people might make the choices, what might be stopping people from making the choices, which is such an important thing to consider and something often marketers don't spend enough time thinking about. We sort of want to think about how can we motivate people? How can we get people to do something without spending enough time thinking about why they might not be doing it, why they might be inert, why they might not be even sort of getting off their seat to do something. Um, and so the, the lens stands as Four, four parts. The first part is the idea of loss. Um, so L is for loss, and loss is really the, um, the notion of, of how the prospect of a loss affects our choices. And this works in many ways. You'll be very familiar with loss aversion. It was one of the, the, the sort of important parts of Daniel Kahneman and Namus Tversky's um, idea of uh, prospect theory. But Really, loss works in many ways. Loss can motivate us to do something. If we feel that there is a prospect of losing it, we might want to grab it now. This is how the scarcity effect works, for example. Yeah. But loss can also, and I think for marketers, one of the most important conversations I have with people is how loss, the prospect of loss, may stop people from doing things. So one of the things that I do in my workshops and actually I kind of have a section on in my book is I get people to think about 
What might people fear losing that stops them from adopting the behavior they want to make? When I, I help organizations design research, I'm asking them to probe that, that to, to get into this area of trying to find out what might be left, what people might fear leaving behind, what people might fear losing, what comfort they may feel that they are giving up by adopting uh, the, the choice we want them to make. There's a great quote from um, Ron Heifetz, who's at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he says, he talks about people, he says, you know, people aren't change averse. What they are is loss averse, because in every change, there is a potential loss. Um, and so this is an important thing for us to take into account, because what we're trying to do nearly always in marketing is we're trying to, very often we're, we're, we're get, asking people to do something new or to stop doing something they're doing already, or even if we're asking them to continue doing something, there's a potential loss involved in simply saying, keeping up, you know, you're potentially giving up something by continuing doing the same thing. So, so really you can spend a long time thinking about those losses. I, I kind of get it down to sort of one letter in a, in a, in a four letter acronym, right. but it is a huge, can potentially have a huge effect on how people choose. So, so that's the first part of, um, of the lens. The second is um, ease. Uh, and this is something we all know about, which is, I mean, <laughs> we all take the easiest path to, to do things. The reason I'm carrying more pounds than I should be, the reason I haven't finished writing something that I should have been writing, and the reason I've got 20 books on my Kindle that I'm, I'm only 7% through is because it's easier to not do those things. Um, and Richard Thaler, the, the uh, um, Nobel Prize winning uh, behavioral economist, and I say behavioral economist because he comes from an, an economics background, um, I think he has a great quote, which is he says he's learned two things in his book, Misbehaving. He says, I've learned two things uh, working with practitioners. Um, and um, one of them, the first one he talks about is that uh, if you want someone to do something, make it easy. Mm. Uh, and it is so embedded in human nature to sort of follow that easy pathway. Um, and this affects choice in a number of ways. I mean, we will often bypass a decision that seems difficult because there is an easier route that means we don't have to go there. Uh, or we will simply put something off because it seems too difficult. Um, but just this notion of, 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 of kind of making something easy, again, this is not just physical ease, in my perspective, or from my perspective, ease covers many, many different things. Mm -hmm. Ease covers, of course, you know, sort of um, the idea there was a study done a number of years ago that showed that when an ice cream cabinet was closed, sales went down, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, 10 or 20% when it's opened back up again, the sales come back just from that simple thing of the cabinet, the, partly the effort of the cabinet being closed. Maybe perhaps a closed cabinet sends out signals. It kind of helps reinforce your, <laughs> your, your uh, strength in not taking an ice cream. But certainly there's an aspect of ease there. And, um, but cognitive ease is also an incredibly important thing. Um, you know, one of the things that sort of Byron Sharp talks a lot about is, is about sort of brands being mentally available. Mental availability is a form of ease. If you are more mentally available than somebody else, it is easier to bring that brand to mind. Mm -hmm. If the associations that you have fit together more easily, if the brand narrative fits together more easily, it becomes an easier brand to make a choice about. Um, you know, and one of the 
big areas again, which I think is sometimes a aha a moment for marketers. I was having a conversation with somebody this morning about the difference of, between aha moments and haha moments. And I think I'm looking for more haha moments in my life now than aha moments. Um, but um, is, is, is this notion of comparison. So um, Itamar Simonson, who's a professor at Stanford, wrote a book called um, Absolute Value. So Itamar did some great work on decoy effects and comparisons back in the 1990s. Um, and his most recent work is how the internet has perhaps almost supplanted the mechanisms we saw at work back then, like the compromise effect, which is people would tend to go for the middle option, because now it's actually very easy to get the information. The internet itself is almost a heuristic and a shortcut. Um, But um, one of the things he talks about is how we're addicted to comparisons. And uh, one of the reasons for this is that it's very difficult to make a choice in isolation. We're always looking for reference points Mm. from which to make choices. Mm. And if you can create reference points that help people, guide people towards a choice you want them to make, you are making that choice easier. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of the way we, we we look at things. It's we don't look at everything we see and say, what is that? And try to build a mental model for it from the ground up. We can say, what's that like that I know already? Mm-hmm. Because that is easier. We don't need to do the work of constructing something. We already have that model in our, in our, in our heads. And so, you know, another part of ease is how do you create the right comparisons that will help you achieve your objectives? And very often the comparisons, the default comparisons, are not necessarily the ones that will get people to the right place. The comparisons they're carrying around with them don't necessarily help you as a marketer to guide people to the choice you want them to make. So ease has many, 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 many aspects. Um, The N stands for now and near. So it should be a double N, but that kind of started to get kind of funky. But now and near are related. I mean, now is temporal proximity. Um, and, it, you know, really, this is the notion of how, how time and our perceptions of time, how distance affects the choices we make, how they affect how we see things, how um, we factor those things into our decision making. There's a great uh, thing, uh, area of, of um, which relates to manners of distance called construal level theory. Construal level theory is the idea that when things have lesser or greater social distance, physical distance or temporal distance, we regard them quite differently. And that can be, as a marketer, that can be very helpful. I would say that for luxury brands, you actually want to create that distance. That distance is a good thing. Um, you know, there's a, uh, the idea that sort of, I have to work to understand this brand to become an expert on it, actually works very well for luxury brands. It doesn't work so well for the brands that we use on a day-to-day basis for more functional things. And then S stands for self self and social or social and self. And that is really how uh, other people and ourselves affect our choices. Very simply, um, I mean, you know, you're very familiar and and your listeners, your listeners and viewers will be very familiar with um, the idea of social proof, which is how the behavior of others actually sort of affects our choices, how we see things. One of the stories you talked about bird watching uh, mm-hmm. earlier on, but one of the stories I like to tell about this is uh, 
is how, um, you know, if you're, if you're, imagine you're trying to get close to a group of, of shorebirds or waders. Now, you know, these are notoriously difficult species to identify because they often look very similar. Um, and so as you get closer trying to work out whether if I was at home in San Francisco, whether they are least sandpipers or Western sandpipers, mm. it's very frustrating because you sort of get within 40, 40 yards of them, 30 yards, one flies away. Mm. And then a couple of seconds later, another one flies away and, you, and then suddenly the whole flock go. But what's happening there is very interesting because the first one saw me. <laughs> and thought I was dangerous. The second one saw me, but the remainder were reacting to the behavior of the others. Mm-hmm. The reverse of this situation is, is I'm sure if you're eating a sandwich on a park bench, a pigeon comes along and the next thing you know, there's 50 pigeons there. Yeah. Again, it's the same thing. The first pigeon sort of clocked that there was a, a potential few crumbs to be dropped from your, from your baguette or something, but act but really what happened was the, the, the others saw the opportunity and were drawn to the opportunity by seeing the other pigeons. So, so that's a sense of how, how really sort of when you see many, you know, we, we are driven not just by the potential reward or the potential threat, but what we perceive as other people's behavior around that. Um, and self is really important as well because how we feel about ourselves, how we want to project ourselves is incredibly important in focusing our choices. And you, you mentioned the Woody Allen quote earlier on about us being defined by our choices. There's a great, I, I did a workshop a number of years ago that Jonah Berger was talking at. And um, one of the things he talked about is how our choices are communication. I think that's a really insightful way of putting things because it's the idea that sort of, I'm telling you things about myself by the choices that I've made. And, you know, sort of how we, what's important there from a marketing perspective is to ensure that the choice you want people to make aligns with their self-concept, with how they feel about themselves, how they want to project themselves. Because when a thought doesn't align with your self-concept, when a, when a choice doesn't align with your self-concept, you are much, much less likely to make it. So that's a very whistle-top. You asked me about the what and why of Choice, I think it's a, that, that is, uh, that's something we could be talking for uh, a very, very long time about. I've already talked a long time, but the lens is just the way I use mm. to actually kind of bring together many of the different aspects of choice. It's not meant to be a substitute for all of the richness out there. It's simply a way to kind of get people to sort of focus so they can then expand their thinking and think about the particular choices they need people to make, which are always difficult, different, sorry, and the context that will make those choices actually sort of uh, make them easier for people to make or perhaps maybe barriers to, to them making the choices. This is so fascinating. You know, this is like, you know, everybody's talking, Matthew, about human to human marketing and, you know, so many concepts are out there, but this is the how. I mean, if, if people think like this, the marketers and businessmen, only then uh, it's actually going to happen. You, know? um, you were talking about self and I couldn't help, uh, you know, it, it just came to, it might not be totally related, Matthew, but self-efficacy is mm-hmm. another um, beautiful thing that you've talked about in your book. Uh, make consumer feel lucky, attractive, or uh, smart, and 
and along with it, it, it makes things easy as well for the marketer. Yeah, there's, I mean, so self-advocacy is, is part of that triumvirate. I mean, that's kind of three things I put together, and I'll talk a bit about that. Self-advocacy was the um, uh, brainchild, is not quite the right word, but is there was the term developed by Albert Bandura, who died recently, uh, he was in, in his 90s, but a giant of the world of social psychology. And self-efficacy is the idea that when we feel a task is within our capabilities, we will gladly embrace it. Mm-hmm. But when it, we feel it's not, we actually avoid it. It get, gets to that ease thing as well to some extent, and even to loss, which is we don't want the loss of our own self-concept mm-hmm. that we can't do this thing, so we skirt around it. And I think one of the things that's important is um, helping, helping people become experts in the areas that very often the default feeling for a brand is we want to be the expert. And I think the big, the meta thing that I believe about marketing is that sort of, I think the intention of being consumer centric is a good idea. So first I have a problem with the word consumer, but secondly, I think even when marketers are trying to be consumer centric, they're often not because it's not about your brand. It's about their choice. And it's about understanding how people, how that choice makes people feel and how you can make them feel expert at that choice, how you can make them feel confident, how you can make them feel they've made a good choice. The choice is what is at the middle. Mm-hmm. And this is why I talk about marketing, not from a consumer-concentric perspective, but from a choice or decision-centric perspective. But back to the, um, the things you talked about. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, choice as well as being, so if it's easy, you've got more chance of people making it. Mm-hmm. If it feels natural, then it kind of, it means that it is in tune with the instinctive processes that we use to make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's rewarding, then this is a fantastic thing. And, and a choice can be emotionally rewarding. Choices can make us feel really, really, really good. They can make us feel smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can make us feel expert. They can make us feel we're helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, I think often marketers unintentionally do this, but this is when things get really, really interesting to me. And so when I talk about making people feel smart, making them feel lucky or making them feel attractive, those are, those are deliberate. Uh, those are both backed by research to some extent, smart and, lu- and, smart and smart and attractive are backed by research, that studies that show when people feel when you, 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 you manipulate it in, in, in a laboratory and in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a experimental basis for people to feel attractive, then they are stronger and more decisive decision makers. Um, uh, when people feel smart, this happens as well. But the other thing is lucky. It's kind of like sort of, uh, if you feel you're kind of getting something which sort of the gods have smiled on you for a moment, this is a great feeling as well. It's like that sort of thing when you're driving along and you catch five traffic lights in a row, you feel you can conquer the universe at that moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, these are, these, are, uh, these are kind of important emotional things. They help us get through our days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if marketing can do more to sort of, Make, we, we affect, as marketers, we affect billions and billions of choices every day. If we could just make those choices, make people feel good, then I think you're sort of getting towards greater net happiness for the world. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So uh, the one, one important thing that, you know, sort of was mentioned in your book is about how 
to make people feel good about the choices that they've made and how mm. to sort of you know sort of, and when they actually make these choices and you reinforce them then they become more you know they become better advocates and they you know sort of you know are more confident about sort of spreading out for the choices that they made so that's very compelling and i think that is an area where marketers are not really focused on so can you sort of you know yeah. elaborate on that and again i think it goes back to the idea of thinking about this is their choice your objective as a marketer is to accrue as many positive choice experiences as you possibly can i mean you know um i think brands and many of your guests have talked about brands and brands are a central part of marketing and i think brands are very important but i have a belief that brands are important because they make choice easy natural and rewarding um you know i don't so i think sort of very often organizations get obsessive about their brands and they should to some extent because they have great value without really realizing what it is that their brands do mm-hmm. their brands are not there just to sort of be um uh you, you know sort of um to drive culture or to um have certain values those can be important things but at the base of it what a brand is about is making choice easy natural and rewarding and they do this because they come to mind easily they have simple narratives that we absorb and that we that make sense to us it's kind of they become no brainers this is another thing you know a, a brand can make a choice a no brainer that's a very powerful place to be in but they can also make us feel good they can communicate about us the things that we want to communicate mm-hmm. um and i think this is just an important thing when you're constructing your brand story to think about how am i doing this what are you know what associations you, you think about brand purpose for example a huge topic of conversation right. well you know brand purpose is not important in itself i would say but it's important if it helps make choice easy natural and rewarding i happen to believe that it does that um if um if a brand has one of the things is for example for brands to have purpose they really need to condense what they're about um and that in itself helps people understand them in an easy and intuitive way mm-hmm. i think there's also an aspect when brands have purpose there's a bit of reciprocity going on we know this is a behavioral principle that when people give us things we feel we need to do something in return um but more important than that i think it suggests i think it's this goes back to the notion of construal level theory and the now and, and now and near thing which is that it suggests this brand has got a very active view on the present and the future and there's some fascinating research that um uh, i saw when i was writing the first edition of my book I went to the society of judgment and decision making conference and was talking to um a professor there who had just been doing this research about how tense the tense in a language affects um our choices or affects how we feel about something and uh, her conclusion was that the present continuous tense was a very very powerful tense mm-hmm. and i think this is interesting because brand purposes to my mind should be written in that present continuous tense it is not about what we will do mm-hmm. it is about what we are doing it's not about what we've done it's about what we are doing and this i think fits nicely with how human beings think about 
themselves now. We want to be in the present. We want to think a bit about the future. If you get too far into the future, things become abstract and they don't drive choice. They become too distant. And so this notion, I think, of, of a brand purpose, which is about the present continuous, which is about now and what we're doing, mm -hmm. as opposed to what we've done or what we will do, is a powerful area. So I think one more thing which you, which I saw you know, about your about the brand thing is that you mentioned in your book is the, the familiarity aspect of brands and stuff like that. And you know, mm. uh, and one interesting thing which I read was that you know how you should you know as marketers try to you know serve familiarity with a twist. You know, so so you know yes. have something yeah, yeah. you know familiar with you, but you know try and yeah. bring something which is novel. As part of that, can you sort of you know give some examples or and what do you mean by this? Because this is very interesting for marketers to anchor yeah. yourself with something which with the choosers know. Sorry for my use of word consumer, yeah. and then <laughs> yes. sort of you know take uh, you know give them something which is novel and which is maybe which which uh, you know helps them seek out variety or something like that. Yeah, and so first the the idea of familiarity with the twist or familiar with the twist came from um, an ex-colleague of mine, Jonathan Harris, Harris, who was the uh, global chief creative officer of the agency FCB, a truly delightful, intelligent man who you would happily get stuck at an airport for three hours with because you would know it would be a learning and entertaining experience. And he now writes books full time. <laughs> he writes these really interesting sort of uh, 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 crime novels. Um, but... Um, so that this was his idea, and I think it embraces the two notions, the two almost seemingly divergent aspects of human nature. And there's a point here, which is, you know, I'm often, uh, I think sometimes people want to really simplify things and say, this is, these, these are the cognitive mechanisms that will be at play in a certain time. But very often you'll get different things happening at different times, seemingly contradictory things happening. And so, you know, on the one hand, you can say, yes, humans love familiarity. We're drawn to familiarity. Familiarity is safety to some extent. It's easy. Um, you know, um, uh, Robert Science, who um, uh, would describe, who was a, 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 an academic who studied choice, talked about how um, and was responsible for a lot of the work in an area called the mere exposure effect, which right. touches on familiarity. Right. Talks about how um, his evolutionary explanation for familiarity is if it's familiar, it hasn't eaten you yet. Right. So the things that we see around us right. are not inherently dangerous. They are neutral or friendly. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the other hand, so we have a need to explore. So we kind of exploit what is familiar, but we explore uh, to find new things. And again, this is obviously roots in uh, evolution to some extent, which is that what is, uh, you know, <laughs> unsuccessful species tend to be dependent on one source of things. Um, but if you can be, if you can be constantly finding new things, should there be a change in your environment, you have a greater chance of succeeding. So we're hardwired to both take on to be drawn to what is familiar, but to also explore at the same time. So I think sort of if you can, if you can like a sort of a, a twisted cable, wrap those two things together, then you're in a very powerful place. Um, uh, going back to Jonathan Harris, who was the CCO of uh, FCB, one of the great campaigns that they did um, a number of years ago was for Oreo, 
where they kind of basically took this notion of the physical idea of twisting the Oreo apart, but actually using that as a way to come up with a twist on different things. So Oreo was very familiar, but then they would take, they did this this great thing around, I think the, um, it kind of in the 100th anniversary of Oreo, maybe it was, um, but it was certainly a significant anniversary of Oreos where they, they kind of basically took a twist on many different things from gay pride to uh, culture, other cultural events to um, just things that were going on in the world. So they kind of kept it fresh and different, but all the time it was, as you said, anchored in their familiarity. And um, I think the idea of being of, of, of somehow sort of familiarity with a twist kind of leaves enough room for creative thinking to sort of make brands fresh and new again. Matthew, you've also mentioned a cocktail party effect. (laughs) Like Sarvajit said, familiarity and variety. What comes first? Because I think there is a lot of misconception here also. Yeah, and so this is a, this is a, I would put this in the air of a hypothesis uh, rather than something that I can, one can really prove. But I think that sort of um, very often we think that we have to disrupt first um, in order to get people's attention. But there is at least some evidence that relevance is a better way of getting people's attention. I think sort of a traditional creative approach would be we, we disrupt and and there get people's attention this way and then we kind of get into the relevance but actually we may be better off getting people's attention through relevance and then keeping their attention through uh disruption and this this we see in music a lot where sort of the 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 the, the, the you know kind of we, we hear a familiar we're, 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 we're drawn into a piece of music because it sounds like something we know but then we're enthralled by it when it becomes something we don't know. Um, and uh, so the cocktail party effect is essentially the idea that, um, you know, you can hear a lot of noise and ignore it. And it can be actually quite disruptive and different noise. Um, but if that is your name, then you immediately, the, the, the thing that is arguably the most familiar to us, right. then we immediately pay attention. And, and anybody, I mean, it's only happened to me a couple of times in my life, but Whenever somebody has paged me at an airport, I've heard it. Right. Uh, and it's a great you know, field example of this cocktail party effect. We hear that thing because it's relevant. Now, if you were to add disruption to that afterwards, then you've sort of got my attention and then you've kind of taken me through an emotional, uh, you know, an emotional journey. If you... I would not have heard, if you'd started with the disruption, I may not have paid attention in the first place. Now, that's not to say that we don't pay attention to disruptive things. We do because sometimes they alert us to a great opportunity or to danger. Yes. But I think to assume that as a rule of thumb, disruption gets people to pay attention is, is perhaps not, uh, not, not the correct approach. I think I think humor also sort of uh, feeds into that, doesn't it? It starts with the familiar storyline, and then it gives you that's a right. twist or disrupts. So you know that. So and that's why it's such a powerful and a compelling sort of you know 
uh, thing for both you know the comedians as well as you know for making a satire or you know uh, commenting on politics and that's why people who are using good humor are very powerful people so i think uh, the, yes. the, uh, coming to the another very fascinating thing that you talk about is the the fact that content is king but context is queen and you sort of mention that you know how we we work like a smartphone where we are like you know we have different apps and we sort of you know and when different app is on we work differently and how are dis- how are different selves of ours affected by the you know the priming effect of context you know and one very interesting you talked about is that you know it is very important that what comes before the ad rather than you know the ad itself is also is so these these are the very sort of you know these are things that still i don't think the marketers or media planners or people who are sort of in the industry they don't pay any attention to so i mean this yeah. is like sort of you know, compelling stuff that you put out yeah and and this is again is not i should yeah it's important to me to give credit to um this is not my work this is uh both from connecting with and uh discussing with and working with um academics who've done the research so that that work comes from Vlad Grzegovicius who is a professor um at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota um and um he um his his idea there so it's his idea is the idea of us working like a stone age smartphone and Vlad's a very interesting man because he's a psychologist and marketing professor who's very interested in evolutionary psychology um he he said something I was drawn to him at a, a conference I was at where I heard him talk about cognitive biases and as you will know very often um people talk about these insights into human behavior as being irrational it's like this is proof of the irrational human being mm-hmm. um and that never has sat that well with me um but griscovicius says don't think about these cognitive biases and cognitive bias is a pejorative term anyhow <laughs> but don't think about these cognitive biases as design flaws which is very much how uh, i think the sort of the story of behavioral economics started which is these are mistakes people make mm-hmm. he said think about them as design features they are things that have evolved over time and really the way to think about them is they are features that sometimes when they sort of come up to context getting us back to context in the modern world they don't necessarily guide us to the optimal results Um so his book is called The Rational Animal because he would argue that they they actually all come from a place of rationality. Um but it's just that sort of in different contexts and in a changing world they may not always deliver us the, to the best solutions. I think his argument is really that over time they've worked pretty well for us. So um so yeah so the idea of um of 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 uh of 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 context being queen is is uh and i'm not making a gender statement here quite the opposite what i'm really saying is that sort of i mean many people have said context is king i think the quote goes i can't remember it's um bill gates is one person who's credited with it and a number of other people have been credited with it it's kind of funny isn't it with all these great quotes it's like there's at least half a dozen people who apparently said them um and um i uh what i'm talking about Con- their context being queen i mean it in the sense of chess and of course in chess they that you you win or lose the game by how well you protect your king but the most powerful weapon you have is your queen 
And so really I'm saying context is incredibly powerful because it, it drives our choices and we operate in different ways when a context is different. Um, and the experiment that Vlad Griskovicius did, which I still think I absolutely agree with you, I think it's got such a big lesson for media placement that is seldom taken notice of, is that when he looked at two separate ads, one of which was about suggesting people do something because it was very popular because other people do it, a classic social proof thing, and another ad which suggested people do the same thing because it was an individual choice, they were breaking out, they were doing something different. Um, if he, what before showing people these two ads, this is a classic kind of two by two study, before showing people these two ads, what he did was he showed them, one half the group he showed a clip of The Shining, which was a really scary part where Jack Nicholson is tearing the house up and you know about to unleash mayhem. And to the other group, he showed a romantic film. I think it's called um, Until Dawn. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a classic kind of film where a couple get together. They get together on an overnight train in Europe. Um, I think it's Sophie Delphi is the actor and maybe Ethan Hall. I can't remember. Um, yeah, it, it, yes, it is. Um, and, but, but what happened was by showing those people the different, those different ads, it affected whether they were more drawn to the ad that said, do the same thing, or whether they were drawn to the ad which said, do something different. And the interesting thing here is that the scary ad actually made them more drawn to the ad that said, do the same thing as other people. Whereas the ad, which was more about a romantic moment, um, was perhaps safer as well, led them more to, the, to, to feeling that they were kind of like more likely to be moved by something which uh, suggested they do something different. And so there's, there's a number of ways you can, you can explain this, but I think the important thing is that classic marketing and media placement would not take into account the effect of that. And if it did take it into account, it might get it completely wrong. So for example, we try to find contextual similarities, which is, oh, we're trying to get people to do something risky. Let's, let's put it in a risky environment. Right, right. Um, Matching. As a, as, yeah. So that I think is, is certainly an interesting area. So I think we are done with, uh, actually we'll need a lot more episodes with you over a period of time to <laughs> put deeply into a lot of stuff that you said, but you know, time being short, we want to get into uh, some of uh, some of the funny stuff now. So, you know, a hobby of uh, bird watching. So can you just sort of tell us how it all started and, and what, what you like about it and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, for me, um, I, 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 it was, I grew up in the, in the, countryside in Ireland and we didn't have television there wasn't really very much to do <laughs> um, and uh, we used to go out on, on walks and uh, my dad was, uh, was was interested in birds so we'd start looking at birds but I've, I've never it's 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 a for me it's 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 something I do as I go through my life as opposed to an obsession so I have never ever been on a four week holiday or, or, or trip somewhere just to look at birds. It's more about kind of seeing the birds in the environment I'm in. Mm -hmm. And I think it became something I got, as I got older, it became something I became even more interested in because 
um, I started um, going to different places. My sister lives in Zimbabwe. Right. And so there are many, many birds. And suddenly you're seeing like a whole different world. But it, 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 to your point, it goes back to familiar with a twist. Right. You're seeing the birds you know, and you're seeing these birds that are completely different. And you're seeing sometimes birds that are a bit like the ones you know already, but they're different because they're in a different place or they're there, for the, they're there because they've migrated there from Europe. In each of these places, I see I've, I've, been, I've been able to witness a very different bird environment i mean you know the amazing thing in north and south america is hummingbirds you don't get them anywhere else in the world and these tiny little birds i mean they're fearless they're extraordinary they can fly backwards um you know and i would not really have become as familiar with them if i hadn't had the opportunity to live in the u.s uh, also i think it's a great way to connect with nature and to sort of you know sort of you know it's also very maybe also be possibly meditative kind of an experience you know what sort of you know where you lose yourself and you sort of you know, connect with nature. So which is the most uh, sort of favorite bird, which is your favorite bird to watch <laughs> and which is the most unusual bird you've seen? I think the bird that, that sort of I have a very fond place in my heart for is one I would certainly talk about being meditative, Saraji. Um, I used to sit on the banks of the river Nora in County Kilkenny and look at this bird as it would sit on a rock. It's a bird called the dipper. And um, you, uh, you, you get them, so there is a, a species of dipper that you get in India as well. The one you get in India, so the one in, 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 in Europe has a, a, an enormous white, it's a, it's a small bird, it's not tiny. It looks like a bird you would see in your garden. But this bird is remarkable. So it looks like a kind of a robin or a blackbird. It's, got, it, it's a perching bird, a passeriform. But this bird can walk on the bottom of riverbeds. Oh. And so it's evolved to actually sort of, it, this is how it lives. It eats larvae and bugs and grubs it finds in fast flowing streams. It has special eyelids that kind of like the magically shut, they become like goggles when it's walking underneath the water. Um, it has a white breast, it's got a very white front. And one of the theories is this reflects light forwards right. so it can see what it's doing. But it's, so it's an interesting bird because it looks like a garden bird. And this thing is like a scuba diver sort of going around wandering around in the bottom of the riverbed. So this is, this is a bird I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very fond of, and uh, I've seen the North American species, the American dipper. I've never seen, in Thailand, I didn't see the, um, the brown dipper, as it's called. Sure. And which, which is one of the extinct birds that you would have loved to watch, which is no longer... Uh, yeah, that's a difficult one. I mean, I think the... Um, so... I think one is... Probably that's a question I hadn't even thought of because in a way it's kind of a sad thing to think about. Um, and of course we have the terrible story in the US of a bird called the passenger pigeon, back to pigeons. So the passenger pigeon was a bird that was so, I mean, it was possibly, I think, the, the bird of which there were the most single individuals in North America until the mid 19th century. There were billions of them. They would darken the sky as they flew over. Um, and they became hunted, often for animal food. It was not that people, they would, I mean, they would just, they, people would catch them. I mean, because they just, suddenly what happened was to their environment, and this goes to environment changes and how that affects uh, choices, was that the Europeans came with their guns and their weapons in their hundreds of thousands and then in their millions. And these birds just weren't, they were sitting ducks, as it were. Um, and so the passenger pigeons population declined until, 
The last one died uh, in a zoo, I think, in, in St. Louis in the, the early 1900s. Oh, wow, it is rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where do you get that from? Ireland or Italy? Oh, well, I'm living in Italy at the moment. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Italy, and I'm going to say Italy because uh, Ireland is the most fantastic country in the world, but in Italy, the food is out of this world. And um, yeah, okay. How did I do that? Is it also because of your wife being Italian? It's because of that. And it's also because I think, you know, Italy just won the European Championships. Yeah. Ireland are a long way from doing that. Yeah. I think Italy may win the next World Cup. Ireland, that would be a wonderful dream to happen, but it probably won't happen in my lifetime. So I'm going for sort of the now and near thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is I will get greater emotional joy from aligning with Italy. Awesome. Your favorite football team? Chelsea. Come on, you blues. And football coach? Favourite football coach? That's a great question. It's got to be Thomas Tuchel at the moment. Yeah, I mean, if, if you say of all time, um, I mean, you know, there are people who you might, I mean, I think, you know, dinner with Jose Mourinho would be very, very entertaining and very interesting. Um, but I don't think he's necessarily, I don't think he was necessarily the greatest coach of all time. Tuchel's doing a fantastic job at Chelsea at the moment. Uh, alternate profession could have been? Um, well, I, 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 if I'd been taller, I'd have loved to have been a goalkeeper. Oh. I used to play in goal, but, you know, I never grew enough. But uh, I also wicket-kept for a while as well. So anything that basically stops people. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with that time? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> That's a very deep question. I think you might need to shoot me on that one. Um, I, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, actually, it's a good. So, so what do I do on, on long plane journeys where you can't necessarily sleep? I listen to, I kind of snuggle up and I have a playlist of um, Bach cantatas, which I just kind of go right the way through. And I kind of have this as a kind of a, so maybe what I would do is listen to music. Equally funny question. What would you do on Mars for fun? Planet Mars. On Mars for fun. Um, I would um, I, I'd make friends with my new buddies, Elon and Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Super answer. <laughs> okay. yeah, but you'll have to sort of live with them for life because you won't possibly... Yeah, that might be challenging. Yeah, I suppose the question would be, which one would you rather live with for life? And I don't want to... <laughs> That's right, friendship, you see. Yeah. Okay, your most often used phrase. I, I really like, um, which I learned from, you know, because my background is marketing and I only really started working with academics in, in decision-making in neuroeconomics uh, 15 years ago or so, 20 years ago or so. But a phrase I kept hearing was, it turns out. Right. Ah. And it's used a lot by scientists because what they're really saying is they're not saying this definitely happens and they're not, they're not ascribing an effect to it. And I think it's a good way of kind of communicating the, that we don't know everything. That's, awesome. that's a great one. Awesome. Um, which bird would you like to be, Matthew, if given a choice? And, uh, and why? It's difficult to sort of see oneself as a bird when you know all the harm that we can do to them. But um, 
so in California, we have these birds called turkey vultures. And turkey vultures are interesting in a number of, for a number of reasons. Um, one is, and you know, stop me when I get boring about this because I will get very boring about it. So they're a great example. They're a potentially example. It turns out they might be an example of something called <laughs> convergent evolution. So they're not as closely related to the vultures you get in India or the vultures in Africa or you get in, in Southern Europe. They have a different DNA route but they've evolved with similar characteristics, which is an interesting thing, which is we kind of look at stuff and we assume it's related, but it may just be that they are filling the same ecological niche. And so they fill the same ecological niche as what are called old world vultures. But what I love about turkey vultures is they're quite plentiful. They do a fantastic job cleaning up stuff. As soon as there's a dead animal on the road, they're down kind of getting rid of it for us. But they just soar around in these thermals effortlessly all day long uh, and I mean so even though that's what they do and they may not appreciate it just as we don't appreciate many of the things we do they just they're kind of they have got a, a wonderful view of the world they're sort of very leisurely they have a they have they don't have a, a negative impact on the environment they have a positive impact on the environment and they're much maligned because they're called turkey vultures and they're not really vultures and they're not at all related to turkeys in fact their closest relatives are the condors which are magnificent birds. So I think they should, if I was doing a branding job for turkey vultures, I would rebrand them as condorettes rather than as, a, as, as, as turkey vultures. A book you'd like to gift to all your friends. Yeah, besides business of choice, of course. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, <laughs> I've pretty much done that already. Um, yeah, it kind of changes. Um, this, is, this sounds like a, an obvious thing, but one of the things that... Um, I do at any opportunity is uh, is give people as soon as they they show a slight interest in bird watching right. uh, when it's their birthday I'll give them a cheap pair of binoculars you can buy a, pair, a, re, a pretty reasonable pair of binoculars for sort of 60 70 80 dollars um, and so I think sort of a what I would a, a book I'd like to give to people is a field guide to the birds of where they are um, just because you know you never know when they're going to pick it up and look at it and 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 uh, develop an interest. And actually, it's amazing how often it happens. Could you just tell us where people can find you and stuff like that and where they can sure. follow you? And Sure. I, I, I mean, so I have a, the website. My, the website of the Business of Choice Consulting is thebusinessofchoice.com. Um, and uh, I'm not that. I'm, I'm obviously, I'm in all of the normal places. If you search for Matthew Wilcox or the Business of Choice, uh, uh, I am on Twitter, but I don't, I'm, I'm not spending as much time being active on social media. We've been on, we've been talking now for an hour and 12 minutes and it's flown by. So it's uh, so thank you for making this a, a very easy conversation right. and um, for, for having a, a nice kind of, you had a, enough structure, but not too much structure. Um, so I think it's a, it's going to be a, um, a, a hopefully, not because of anything I've said, but because of the way you've managed it, a, a good session for people to listen to and to view.